You're listening to Startup and Onward, an ongoing conversation with product sales and marketing leaders working to align teams and supercharge growth. Join us as we give you an insider's look into the real-world experience of leaders seeking the growth stage by empowering their teams to navigate the Bermuda Triangle of product, marketing, and sales. I'm your host, Josh Taylor. If you can set the objectives or the goals and the parameters of what success looks like, and then give people the freedom and flexibility to apply good judgment and solve the problem, I think, in my opinion, you will have better results than if you try to prescribe and micromanage to, you know, a, a checklist. Hey, everybody, we have a great episode this week. We had a conversation with Brad Fagan at Robots and Pencils. We dove in talking about how you can lead internal discovery sessions. How do you draw out great ideas from your team in order to innovate what your product and service is doing, but then how you also can continue that process of innovating even after you've had that first idea and how that really should start to impact your team's culture and how do you start solving problems together as one single cross-pollinating unit. Hope you enjoy. Brad, super excited to chat with you today. Good to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. As a way to get started, why don't you give us a brief background on who you are, your experience, and what you're doing now? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> to the beginning of time. It's a cool... To the beginning oh. of Brad time. Actually, we were just talking about how we both met at ThunderTech, and we were part of the early phase of ThunderTech, and now it's celebrating its 25th year. It's kind of hard yeah. to believe. That is amazing. Yeah, actually, so... I'm I'm not from Cleveland originally, but that is where we met. Like I, I came here as a right out of school. It was like a pit stop and thinking I built some experience, got in with a marketing startup. You and I met. Then I also met a woman in a bar. That's a different story. She's not my lovely wife. And before I knew it, boom, I've got roots. Like I'm here. I'm a lifer. It's now been over 20 years. That's crazy. It is crazy. Women will do that to you. They will draw you in. But yeah, they're magnets. And now you're a Clevelander. I am. I am a. Well, I will admit, I did not expect to fall in love with the city, too. I mean, I, I fell in love with her and the location. And so I have no qualms. I'm very, very happy here. It's a great place. But professionally, so I, I started at the marketing startup with you. From there, I went and did a stint as a creative director at a Microsoft Solution Center, worked across a number of verticals, did a lot in the healthcare space in particular, and then became. From there, I went on to become the associate partner at Rosetta, which became Sapient Razorfish, where I focused heavily on customer engagement and e-commerce work within the consumer product and retail space in particular. And then after that, I came to where I am right now. So for the past six years, I've been the executive creative director at Robots and Pencils. We are a technology services company. We engage in and we try our, our focus is helping to engage customers and empower employees. So like if I had to unpack that a little bit more, I'd say we focus on modernizing digital ecosystems, building journey-centered experiences, providing expertise and guidance to help advance your organization's innovation culture and like help augment your technical capabilities. So we're a we're a software design and development shop. So my role as executive creative director, I looked at, look after the pencils side of the house. So our pencils are UX designers, our creatives, and our product owners. Pencils are what we call the humanities, you know, the creative side. Robots are the development, the sciences side. 
we blend humanities and sciences to solve problems. So that's robots and pencils in a nutshell. No, I love that. We also, we also have ampersands in the middle. So the, the conjunction, we, we, they are their own identity. They're the glue that holds us together. The account managers, the project managers, you know, we wouldn't function without someone keeping us on the rails. You just refer to them as ampersands in there? They're the ampersands, yeah. Okay. The robots, the pencils. <laughs> uh, it's good to have a role. It's good to have a role in the connective tissue. That's correct. I love the positioning of blending the sciences and the humanities. And you were saying that you know, you're really focused on these journeys and the user experience inside of technology. What are some of the things that you've noticed over the, I wouldn't even say it's just been six years, right? Because you were doing that back at the Rosetta days. What, what do you find is the most curious conversations that you're having with clients when they come to you and saying, hey, we really need to focus on an improvement to technology and you start having conversations with them about the experience of the end user is that a an easy conversation are you finding that there are certain things that you are uncovering in the initial stakeholder conversations where you're like wow i think we may be far afield from what the user actually cares about i think we've i've seen the market advance they've matured in their thinking in general i think everyone's starting to get their head wrapped around the importance of being customer centric and putting users at the center of whatever they're solving and building. So that's, that's always been in our DNA. That's been our core focus. Like how do we blend the, the reason we're blending humanities and sciences together is we believe that it's form and function are necessary to solve any problem. And I think there's a willingness and an openness to that. I think everyone knows that they need it now. Not everybody's adept at doing it. Like there's some that are stronger in the creative and the design side, but need the technical support. And then there's the technical shops that are looking for, you know, like, and they've got strong in-house development teams, but they don't have the design side of the equation. So, and some have both, but don't have scale. So like everyone's got a little different need, but they're all trying to navigate the same solve the same problems in the same way. And so it's just kind of understanding where they are and figuring out how to get them, you know, keep the ball moving forward. So everyone seems to have a focus on the user. Is that always getting to the heart of what the user needs though? Just because you're saying, hey, we're, we care about the user? I think everyone knows this, the talk track, right? Everyone knows that they want that, but they don't necessarily know how to do it. So it's saying and doing are two different things. And I think the art in all of this is to try to get at the underlying root causes of what's actually happening. Like you can go do research and you will gather insights, but insights are often symptoms, like they're, they're observations, but there's usually motivations or behavior behind it that's leading to that, that symptom. So it's, it's at, it, there's like all the techniques of using appreciative inquiry to continue to ask why and probe deeper. And I think that's the trick of how do we get to the root causes underlying things and then solve around those and make sure that we're actually addressing the problem in hand. Oftentimes you're coming in, right? A product team is going out of house and they're saying, hey, we basically need to augment our internal capabilities to advance our product forward. I would assume that sometimes in your own sales process, there is an internal sales job that needs to be done, right? From a product leader's perspective, they're trying to convince their internal team, hey, we need extra bandwidth. We need extra support for us to go innovate in this space. How have you 
come alongside those product leaders and help them make that case, make that case for an outside team to come in? I think, I mean, first and foremost, you just need to be able to have the right conversations with the key stakeholders and get perspective from all the different corners and understand what's going on. So you got to immerse and get a lay of the land. And it's all about everything that we do. Everything that everyone's trying to do is to create value, right? We're all trying to solve the same problems. We ultimately all have the same goal, like to do, to be, to create success, to engage users, to grow revenue. Like, I mean, it's the, it's the, the reason everybody's in business. So the more that, so the trick is how do we understand what the the root problems are and then be able to tell the story in a compelling way and connect it back to the return that it's going to create like how like if we do these things it will generate this type of value we've done it in these places here's how others are doing it like connecting the dots between effort and return so that they can build a business case and go pitch it and and it's it comes across as believable right we need to do something that's going to not just be done for doing it sake but actually something that's high value I mean, this is a you know moment where there's a big investment from a client side. Are you used to seeing certain signs that give you kind of a red flag that says, "Hey, listen, I don't, I'm not getting the sense that they're really on board with this. That there doesn't seem to be true buy-in to move forward in the way that would be necessary to build a great product." Because I, the mm-hmm. timeline for building something like this, you're probably in. 60 to 90 days of just discovery and research before you're actually doing into the building. And that's a long time horizon for certain clients. What do you, what do you look for when it comes to, I think this is the right environment. They're bought in, they're ready to go. Well, I mean, red flags, there's, there's a number of red flags you can find. Like, I mean, like if there's not a clear process in place to gather feedback, synthesize insights and make joint decisions, that's usually a red flag. I think if you see that the there's a loudest voice in the room, a most powerful person is driving the roadmap and everyone else is caving to that perspective, that's usually a, a tell that maybe it's not a healthy environment. I think a good test too is if folks are unable to answer basic questions, like if you can if you ask, can you send me a link to the product roadmap? Right. Like that's a good way to just understand do they know what it is, where it is, and does mm-hmm. it exist? Right. (laughs) And I think another way that we, you know, we'll we'll ask questions of different stakeholders to see, do we get the same answers, right? Are Are you trying to say that a product roadmap isn't a backlog of issues? That's not the same thing as a product roadmap? (laughs) No, I would not. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think if, if when you ask the question, like what determines value or what should the priority be or what does success look like? And everybody gives you a different answer. That's usually a, a strong indicator that people aren't aligned. That was you, you asked about red flags, but then there was a second part of the question. I, I lost track of what. Well, it was. just if there's red flags, and I think I was actually asking kind of the the opposite of that. So if there are things yeah. that you're looking at that would be with green flags, <laughs> like hey, we're ready <laughs> to go. <laughs> I think green flags would just be that there's there's alignment and a cl- there's clarity of purpose and goal, like the vision of what you're trying to accomplish exists and. Stories are clearly defined, features are prioritized, the backlog makes sense, people can articulate the value and, and, and why the decisions and priority is what it is. Those are all, that, that's demonstrating that there's a team environment because product design is a team sport and you've got all the different corners and departments and everybody's got their own metrics and KPIs, but they all have to work together in a symbiotic relationship to achieve it. That's and good, yeah. so I think 
that's where the goals and the roadmap and the project plan are that like central backbone that shows everybody's working together. And it's a way for you to continue to like come back to center and say, are, is what we're doing laddering up to the ultimate goal? Yeah, that's good. If you are listening to this though, and you're a leader and you're in a culture where you're saying, yeah, I, I would love to achieve those things. I want us to be there, but we're not. Are there anything that you found as good next steps for clients that maybe you're currently working with because they had the budget, they're ready to move forward, but maybe you've started to uncover some misalignments and you're actually working with the stakeholders in-house to help really galvanize even more than they may already be. Maybe they're halfway there. They're not quite all the way there as alignment as a team. Are there some things that either you do or that you've given as advice to others help get to that moment where they all have green flags yeah yeah i mean you, you said it in in the setup there I and mean, first just need to involve the stakeholders right like getting everyone involved in the planning process is the best thing that you can do because a diverse group of people is going to have all different perspectives different vantage points nobody ever has the full picture so you have to get all of the key decision makers at the table together and working on the game plan. And I think a lot of the time when we don't get buy-in at a company level, it's because people aren't in the room together. So I know that sounds really simple, but I definitely think there's a trend of it, it's easy. There's a human behavior and inertia that goes with departments where we get in our silos, we go heads down, we're working yeah. on our what's directly in front of us, and we don't come up for air and then cross-pollinate and share ideas with each other. So I think having those the hygiene to do that regularly and do deep work, but then come back, merge to Maine again as a team, I think is really important. And then I think another bit is just work on work from facts as much as possible rather than opinions. Right? Like talk to people on the front lines, talk to actual customers, uncover what's real from your users. We will come in and do stakeholder interviews to again get different to understand what they understand or think they know about what they're doing just to kind of get a lay of the land. But it's, we really like working from facts, it gets you to what's the objective fundamental problem that we're trying to solve. Like if I were to reference like Clayton Christensen, who's a strategist and an author, late author, he, he talks about what are the jobs to be done? So if you can define the jobs to be done, I think it starts to obviate what the solutions, it becomes a lot easier to solve the problem. There was another quote, I can't remember who said it, but it's, it ties into jobs to be done. It's like people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. Mm -hmm. So if yep. you can understand the need and the outcome, then you can talk about the way to actually accomplish it. So getting everyone at the table together, getting all the insights and ideas out on the table so that everyone understands the big picture, then you're in a position to have a conversation on how to work together to solve the problem. When you're in those rooms and you're talking about jobs to be done, I think when you identify that certain cultures have silos and yeah. you have the product team that may be separated, they may come to the table with their own set of facts, their own set of facts that are supercharged oh. with emotion. Alternate you know? facts? Well, I don't know if they're alternate, but they're definitely from their perspective, right? Sure. It's like, Fair. I see this list of things that are the priority. How do you start to break down those silos when you when you are kind of the objective voice in the room right you're yeah. able to see and see maybe things that they can't see how do you de-escalate that 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, there, I think there's a, we've done it a number of ways. Like there's, there's a bunch of activities or workshops that you conduct and, and we adapt depending on the situation and the, the need, but couple that come to mind like one I, I don't know what we would call it it's like a sticky dots activity or something or but it's like give everybody in the room a sticky note give them 10 sticky notes ask them to write down what their top priorities are what they think the, the, the initiative should be or the yeah. product feature like what are the most important features in the product get them have them put them all up on the wall and then give everybody a set of like 10 stickers and say now go vote on the things that you think are the most important and you know, some people will take all 10 of their stickers and put it on their, their top idea. And that's, <laughs> that's okay. I mean, that's their prerogative. But but it's a nice way to force you to look at what everybody else has put on the board too mm, and yeah. get outside of your lane. And then yeah. a lot of like every time we do it, invariably people look at it and like, ooh, I, I wasn't even thinking about that one. But yeah, that's interesting. We need that. I'll put a vote there. And yeah, so good. you can kind of then watch and see where the stickers gravitate and that starts to surface what the collective goals should be so that it's not, it's you're, you're not just pushing for individual agendas together. It's like, as a team, where's their consensus? What does that exercise do between the levels in a company? Like if executives are in mm. that room with lower level people, have you found that that like different <laughs> layer of like up and down cross pollination also is important? Yeah, no, I mean, it, I think it, it democratizes the process pretty well. We will work with the company to kind of decide how to approach it. Like sometimes we will give weighted stickers. So like a bigger sticker for someone that's the C-suite or something. So like this one got 10 little votes, but one big vote, you know, like that, like, right. I think you do have to factor in because different, like some higher up individuals probably have more purview on all of the implications of every, all the decisions. So, right. You know, I think we do need to balance that some, but it still exposes a lot of variety of thinking. And I think we, we try to anonym, make it anonymous so that it's not like, you know, Joe's got the pink stickers and like, why did you vote on that? You know, like we're, we're, it's trying to diffuse emotions and not get competitive at all. Right. It's just right. Look for commonality. And, and I think the environment, that situation just naturally invites collaboration. So it, it works out really well. Yeah. What's right is definitely more important in those exercises than who's right. Correct. Uh, it's yeah, just hard to hard to create that open field where everyone feels equal in that in that exercise. But and you can do like so like in other ways we've done it. We'll have like exercises that are more diverge, go break away and kind of work individually. Like like we'll have a Mad Lib style product vision where you fill in the blanks on the audience, your market need, what a product does, what, what would make it different. And so it forces you to write a paragraph to tell a story. And then you come back to the table and each person can share what they came up with. And then you can look for where there are similarities, where there's differences. And I think it just, again, it invites everybody to have some influence on the outcome and feel like they're a part of the decision. One of the books that I'm reading, actually, a, a friend of mine shared it with me was Who Not How. Have you read that book? No. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. It's a short one. It's a great audiobook because it was a collaboration between the author and this guy as a coach who basically came up with the philosophy of who, not how. And in the audiobook version, in between chapters, they actually interview each other. So it's almost like an audiobook and a podcast combined, which is kind of cool. But the whole philosophy is 
when you are trying to accomplish any endeavor, it's not about you as an individual thinking about all of the right ways to do it or all the right solutions. You really do need the right people. And if you get the right people, the right who's, you're going to accomplish everything that you need to. And you'll do it quicker. You'll do it better. You'll do it, you know, name all the benefits and you'll have them because you basically have the right team. Have you found that to be true in not only what you guys do at Robots and Pencils, but even with inside the client work that in those discovery meetings where you're bringing people to the table, it's not just the opportunity to uncover ideas and pathways for the product, but it may also be an opportunity to see certain individuals that could really be an ongoing contribution to as you're building the product. Are you saying is it a, is it a way to identify like strong contributors to or maybe even some overlooked voices? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it it reveals not just to us as a as an outside party, but I think it exposes these activities draw people out of their shell and I think yeah. uncover some really in, hidden gem thinking that might have been lost before because they didn't feel like they had the forum to share but now it can be out in the open and so and then you'll see some it's a self-serving prophecy it starts to unlock their potential because it's rewarding to to have your idea on the board and have people voting for it and then it actually makes the roadmap as a prioritized feature suddenly you feel that feels great that's an empowering moment for the individual and I think then it it just breeds them to contribute even more moving forward. Yeah, I think I reference this book so often, but like Liz Wiseman's Multipliers. Yeah. And she talks about finding native genius. And that's exactly what I think you're referring to is finding someone's native ability. It is not necessarily something that's refined or not. It can always be more refined, but oftentimes it's just hidden. And I think the biggest disservice we have in our organizations is that we typically reward positions, promotions to those who are the more outgoing people. But we always have people that are in our organization that are not in that disc profile. You know, they're the quiet contributors, but that doesn't mean they don't have earth shatteringly good insights about what we should be doing to serve our client better. It's just that they're not going to be broadcasting those things. You really have to create the environment to draw it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Multipliers is a great book. I love it. We do an activity at Robots and Pencils that we call Art of the Possible, which is another facilitation mechanism to kind of draw this type of thinking out. But the, the purpose of Art of the Possible is to approach, to get you to imagine something beyond what you might typically think of. So for an example, there have been 5,000 AI tools launched in the last month, right? Right. So like what new capabilities exist today that didn't exist last month that are now out there could augment your current product experience. Like whenever you started building this and this roadmap and release cycle, like there are things available to you now that you didn't have back then, right? So you're, roadmap probably should evolve so like we it's this exercise to think through blue sky open exploration cross industry cross perspective beyond just like the the specific job to be done i think that's a good way to 
again, draw other perspectives out and opinions and ideas to the table. And it's also a good way to like just solve the specific task at hand. So Art of the Possibles, like we'll we'll create thought starter statements, like what if or how might we statements, like what if there are some quick wins that could dramatically reduce customer transaction time or mm -hmm. how might we make it easier to navigate our complex purchase process for our clients, for our, our customers. Um, so, and then these become thought starters that we can lead co-creation work sessions with everybody to generate ideas. And again, it just, it you'd be surprised or maybe not just how much good thinking comes from everybody. Yeah. It's, it's, all of that out. Do you think that it's just a matter of framing the challenge in a different light or it's getting them to just break out of their old way of thinking? Like, what is it about the art of the possible that is so successful for you guys? It's a great question. I, I think it's everything we've been talking about. I think it's just it's a reason to come to the table together. I think it is a, a different framing, maybe that they haven't like forcing them to think about what they're doing from a different angle that they haven't before. I think there's value in that just coming at it from different directions, poking it. And I think it's the format. I think the 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 willingness for everybody to show up and understand that we're all going to contribute and we want perspective from senior to junior talent and we want all departments presence and you know the more we can get that diverse audience there's a real eagerness and interest in to, to see what comes out of that type of a setting so i think it's all of it it's the framing it's the it's the moment itself it's the willingness to engage and i think the i think the results demonstrate the value in it because of the you can see real hand real time what's coming out I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts on this i in going through exercises like that i've found that if you can get everyone on board the exercise is great the conversations are great but what starts to happen when like ideas that are kind of wild or seem on their face wild start to be discussed or they're on the board those individuals that are in the room that are more the convergent thinkers they're not the divergent thinkers they're the ones that want to like figure out how we're going to plug the holes in the boat and make sure that hey that's great but how are we going to invoice for that or hey. yeah, that sounds like a great idea but how is that scalable if we get like 300 people how do you prevent <laughs> the nerves in the room that are the convergent thinkers from not jumping in too quick to solution before all the ideas are on the table Oh, yeah, there's that's a tough one. I mean, personalities are, are are always fun to navigate. I think we we try to set the stage and say, like, even just setting it the way you framed it, like we're going to like the first portion of this meeting is divergent thinking. And so we're, we want unbridled, unfettered creativity. We're going to set aside the rational mind for a moment and we'll, there's a time to be practical later so like once it's all on out on the board don't worry like there will be plenty of opportunity to dissent later you know like part two of the meeting so we just try to buck time box and bucket where the portion of the meeting go and then i think we permit people to keep each other honest so we'll say like and if anybody starts to stray like please, we should, let's all police each other, raise your hand, throw a flag, you know, we'll, we'll have some fun right. with it. Right. And, uh, you know, we're not going to get offensive. Don't be offended. It's not, it's just a oh, good thinking. Like, can we employ, if you're familiar with like appreciative inquiry, where it's all framing things in a positive, 
rather than say off topic, like, can we say like, that's, a, that's good. Let, but you know what, let's come back to that. Or let's table that. Let's right now we're, let's just keep working on getting ideas out. Yeah. I wonder if so many leaders who are hesitant to jump into a product ideation session like that yeah. are hesitant because their perspective or their their wrong thinking really about what those exercises are is that they're just pure divergent thinking that you're just brainstorming creatively and you're going to pick an idea that seems creative and you're just going to run with it and that they don't have visibility to all the very intentional convergent thinking that needs to happen to have a great wild idea be great for the business yeah i and that's interesting. I, I yeah, I think you definitely. I mean, the magic trick is you have to. You do have to converge. Right? Like you have to. You have to. And for someone that's got that skepticism, you're you're inviting them to suspend disbelief, so that let's give it a go, right? And we can do this session in a half day or a full day, you know, depending on your availability. And I think we will show you at the end how we start to converge and how it's going to turn into something that's actionable for you. So that's just part of the plan. And I think we also like want to demonstrate like th there's going to be things that come out of this that's that are really cool ideas, but you're not sure if they're going to work. And then there's other things that are going to come out of it that are that we have high enough confidence that we could get started on. And so you do this exercise to surface both types of needs so that there's the quick wins that you get started on now. We'll begin design and development on that today because we know enough. But then there's other things that we would call your riskiest assumptions. Like that's a cool idea, but I don't know. And that's where you can run some quick experiments to start to kick the tires and fail fast and discover mm. discover things early rather than throwing it into development and then going weeks, months downstream only to find out there's a gotcha moment. That's a big problem that you could have uncovered a lot sooner. So right. I think that's part of the, the, the value proposition of the exercises. Let's get all the ideas on the table. Let's go through these exercises to help prioritize. Let's identify where we have the biggest unknowns. Like this idea is great, but do we even have the data to support it or mm -hmm. And these APIs talk to each other. I don't know. Let's go test. Let's go try. Right. And if you hit a snag, then it's, well, can we fix it? What would it take? Or, you know what? That's actually a huge block or barrier. Let's deprecate that for now and focus on something else. Yeah. I think that's you. I mean, you just said it earlier. You said it's a team game. This is a team effort. Yeah. And uh, even though this podcast will come out and somebody will be listening to it far, in the future, we just have the 24th perfect game in Major League Baseball this week. That's right. And I think about like that in the context of what we're talking about from product. Like when you have an idea and it makes it all the way to commercialization and it, it wins for the company, it does all these great things. It's kind of like a perfect game. And the fact that people normally see just the pitcher, like he pitched a perfect game. But for those of you that know baseball, and even if you don't, a perfect game is there are no errors. There's no walks. Like it is a true team effort. Like the pitcher could do everything right. And if there's one error, it's not a perfect game. And just like a product being released, you often just see the product or the idea come to fruition. But if you're not 
if you're not working as a convergent team, if you're not thinking and checking off those things that could be issues and then investigating them and then figuring out a way to make them into a reality, or maybe it is an issue now, but if we think creatively about it, we could turn it into a positive. I mean, it, it takes everyone in order to move a great idea forward. Yeah, I, I was in a conversation earlier today and like this stat was thrown out. It was something like digital transformation strategy. Like there's right now there's, the economy is spending something like $3 trillion towards digital transformation strategies. And 80% of that fails. So like the amount of money that we're wasting is bigger than like the world's GDPs. And it's typically from a lack of communication and change management. And, you know, failure could be defined a number of ways. It could be yeah. things never get finished or deployed, or it could be they get deployed, but they don't get adopted or they get deployed and maybe they're, they're getting used, but the output, the impact isn't what you expected. So like you can frame failure in a number of different ways, but they all, all, they're all flavors of failure that just means it was unsuccessful. And so the, the key to, I think, effective product design is to try to de-risk the solution as early as possible. Yeah. And the best way you can do that is to have these co-creation sessions, align on the priorities, work from facts first, yeah. you know, and I think make informed decisions. And so I, now the other thing I, I mentioned earlier too, like, I think it's a misnomer to pretend that there's like a single, like, like the best laid plans are fine, but you need to remain flexible to change too, because I think that the secret sauce is to set the objective and then empower people to figure out how to solve the problem because they're going to find ways. They're going to come up with things that you didn't anticipate. Ding, ding, ding. I was just going to say trust. Trust. You don't have trust in the team to execute and see things and respond very quickly as opposed to having to bubble things up the chain of command, you won't have the speed that you need. That's right. And so I think sometimes we could be overly fixated on what the singular problem is and, and it, it risks becoming rigid when if you can set the objectives or the goals and the parameters of what success looks like and then give people the freedom and flexibility to apply good judgment and solve the problem, I think, you, in my opinion, you will have better results than if you try to prescribe and micromanage to you know, a, a checklist. So that's more of just a general philosophy on product design that I think is worth thinking about. Right now, there's all this buzz about machine learning. We have to be on machine learning. We have to figure out how that implements new open opportunities for us and our team. Mm -hmm. How do you avoid the exploration of that idea, potentially siphoning too many resources as you're trying to explore how the new, the new frontier of machine learning is going to make our product better mm -hmm. and possibly distract from serving the clients that you have today? Well, it's, I mean, you're kind of asking how, how do you prioritize? And I mean, prioritization is a balancing act. Right? It's you're balancing perceived value of the activity, the cost it would take to do it, the time it would take to get to market, and if there's any dependencies in between it. So I think I think you need to understand, you need to identify all the different levers of everything that you're working on, and then get the cards on the table, and then be able to start to 
plot and evaluate the trade-offs because there's only so much time and there's only so much funding to go around and you can't do it all. And there's only so much so number of people. You only have so much resources. AI, sure, risks being a distraction. I, I don't, I think it's important. I think everybody needs to be, I think if you're not carving out some portion of your roadmap to figure out how to inject it, you're going to get left behind. But I hear what you're saying. Like it also could be a, a major distraction and then you lose sight of the original path that you're on. So that's, that's the trade-off balancing game you gotta, you gotta make. I, I do think, I think that's where experimentation can be a good way. You can carve out a portion and say, we're going to run some experiments around AI and what it could enable for us, how we might use it, where it could fit into our application. And we're going to commit X percent, 10%, 15% of our budget towards that. And let's go see what the little skunk works team can come up with. Yeah, Meanwhile, we're going to keep the other 80, in 80 to 90% of the team focused on the task at hand and the primary roadmap. I, I don't know what percent it is. Each organization's going to have to decide, but like something like that would be a way to create some balance and then go run some quick experiments and see what comes out of it. Because I think there's a risk sometimes with agile delivery, like agile delivery, there's always this expectation that software is going to come out of the other side and we start to and we go into our sprint planning and we point them based on what's quick or what, what we can accomplish in a two-week timetable. And, and if you only manage your project that way, then you're going to, I think, in, inevitably prioritize the low-risk activities. Hmm. Which, because you're trying to complete something, so you're going to choose what's low-hanging fruit. Correct. And if you only do the low-hanging fruit, you're never going to innovate. Hmm. So I think you need to strike, you need to have a, strategic focus that recognizes there's tactical things we need to do to get things done and check boxes but then there's also advancement things that we need to explore to make sure that we're not idle and we're not and that we're we're not going to get left behind that we're pushing boundaries so how are you as a leader making sure that you are not getting distracted from the busyness so that you can be that voice in the room pushing the creative team to say hey are we are we just carving off something that we know so that we can execute versus are we really pushing the envelope of the solution to truly innovate in this area? That comes back to the jobs to be done in my mind. I think it's and everything we've been discussing, like running periodic art of the possibles, even once you've started, like art of the possible isn't something that you just do once up front and then forget about. I think you need to plan quarterly sessions where you come back and say okay we we, we had a plan and we're, we're moving towards it and we're going to ship this release now it's time to break outside of our heads down delivery and let's come up for air again as a team reconverge and brainstorm and mm -hmm. make sure that the path that we're on is still the right path to go down our, has our goal changed is there any new input that we should use to adapt uh, so th there's i guess i'm describing a little bit of just structure like being being committed to innovation, I think, is an important part of any product lifecycle. And yeah. I think making carving the space and, and having some regiment to allow space to do the innovative strategic brainstorming, I think, is a good way to just keep it at the forefront. I think you said something that's really helpful. I mean, you, you said even in the exploration of artificial intelligence, let's just say, mm -hmm. give a team constraints say we're going to time bound it and say we're going to run some experiments for six months we're going to take a look at these softwares we're going to look at these 
elements of our service and to see if we can plug in machine learning into them. We're going to give you this budget so that you can use it without needing to come back to us. Just go use it and go explore, go figure it out as a true Skunk Works team that has the autonomy to truly ideate and explore and test things. And if you do that, it's like a a controlled explosion. It's going to move the piston up and down, up and down and up and down to move the, the engine forward as opposed to just being an explosion out in the open. Yeah, I mean, we're doing it internally with our teams. Like we're running monthly jam sessions where we're, we're permitting ourselves a day, one day per month where the team can just detach from the delivery and just go explore. So let's mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll stay with the creative team since it's closest to my background. I mean, the, Figma has eight, ten. I found ten different plugins in Figma in our design, our primary design tool, that are AI augmentation, workflow enhancements. You know that each one does a different thing, and so we're going to take the next one and just let's all divide and conquer. Everybody go play with it for the next couple hours, and then come back and share how did it work? What did you find? Was it easy to use? Like, could it be I an accelerant for your, for your delivery? You know, and I, I'm sure some of them were going to say, don't bother, waste your time. But I'm, I'm expecting several of them are going to be like, this is a game changer. And mm. having one person use it, prove it out, be able to demonstrate it back to us. I think everyone then can go see how it's used, start to adopt it. And then we just became, became X percent more efficient in the way we do our work. And that's so awesome. that's, that's just kicking the tires on our toolkit. You know, but I think you can apply that same philosophy to a product design cycle and say like, okay, we've, we've got a plan, but today's the like no plan day. Like, let's just think blue sky again. If you could do anything, if you were queen for a day, what would you do? Yeah. And by it being a no plan day, you still had to plan for it. It's not going to happen randomly. So it's like the the ultimate irony. It's like (laughs) you actually have to take the time to plan intentionally these moments of unstructured exploration. Right. You have to structure your unstructured. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's part of the good product design hygiene. Like you just make make it integral to it's it's a given. It has to be there. It's a non-negotiable. That's great. In closing, what are you reading right now? What are the podcasts or things that are cut your eye? So you just want like the fun stuff, like personal level. I'm reading. I'm reading. Yeah. What are you reading right now? I'm reading Salem's Lot. All right. By by Stephen King. It was the second book he ever wrote. I've got this unwritten, unspoken until now i think goal of reading all of his books like i've read a bunch but like he's got 50 some novels so i've got a you have way way more tolerance for being afraid than i do so i do have a high horror tolerance that's true <laughs> yeah but, but so that's that's personal professional i have i've just started at your recommendation listening to extreme ownership oh by, yes by jocko willink and leaf babin I've read the book. I love the book, love the philosophy of like the whole premise is to set your ego aside and accept responsibility, even to a fault. So, but I've read it. I think you, you recommended I should listen to it because I know the authors narrate that they read it. I think that's a great idea. Like it'll be, this will be actually the first time I've ever read a book and then gone back and listened to it 
And so I'm excited to just compare what I glean out of it from a different format. Have you started it? I've just started it like this week. So I'm not very far. <laughs> well, all you need is the intro. It's yeah. just so intense. It's great. It's great. <laughs> uh, if, if any of you have not listened to Leaf Babin, I think a lot of people have heard Jocko's voice, but Leaf's is almost like even more intense. <laughs> we were in Ramadi. We we're on the we we're on the edge of the street. We're like, whoa, this is <laughs> not the typical business book that I've read <laughs> or listened to. I'm actually I'm actually reading reading another business book called The Trusted Advisor. It's by David mm. H. Meister. It's a book that was given to me. It's been on my shelf for almost ten years. I got it a couple companies ago, but I really I'm loving it. I definitely recommend it. I think if you're in professional services, it has a lot of great advice about how to build strong relationships by building trust, like through listening, through framing of issues, to making them look good. There's also an interesting formula in it that I guess I could just spoiler alert the, the formula yeah, yeah. formula is like trust is equal to credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation mm. so I, I I won't try to unpack like there's chapters on this that explain yeah, yeah. why but it's a really credibility plus reliability plus intimacy so these are ways that you can build trust but right. then you have to divide it by your self-orientation like your ego and that's and there's just a really it's really well articulated and it put, brings out some some good frameworks to think about it's been helpful really to me i'm only halfway through it but strong strong recommend for anybody that's in services that's really really good if speaking of trusted advisor if you because of your background your experience if you have the opportunity to you know share one piece of advice that someone who may be early in their career maybe they are just starting off leading a team or maybe this is an executive that's yeah. just you know trying to make a difference in their products what would you say that they should either start doing or stop doing to have more impact I think I mentioned earlier, but it's something I, I say a lot and I believe strongly in. It's setting objectives and not tasks. As a leader, I think that's really important. Right? We need to provide a North Star and then rally people around a purpose and then empower them to figure it out. So it's mm -hmm. what that's the that's the thing you should do. The inverse of that would be micromanagement. But if you're micromanaging, you're only as good as what you think, what you know, right? You're not getting any input outside of your experience. So setting objectives and not tasks, I think, is a good, good tool to live by. And then one of my personal favorite mantras I say all the time is assume positive intent. I think it's easy to be quickly critical, but in yeah. general, I believe everybody wants to do a good job and everybody's trying. And so I think starting from a place that gives people the benefit of the doubt, you know, see context and before you pass judgment, you know, and if it's I'm not saying people can't be wrong, but I think if you're assuming there's a mo there's a reason behind what they've done or what they think, I find that's a much more rewarding approach because it be just it invites collaboration instead of contention. Yeah, well, that's interesting in the context of what you just shared about the book of uh, that, that quotient that I'm now forgetting the, but divided by your, what is it? Your personal focus or your, not your, your, focus your self-orientation, self self-orientation. 
I think that is a, it's a big contributing factor in that type of ecosystem. I mean, assuming positive intent is good and is extremely important, but we also are constantly weighing the facts as well. <laughs> Have you heard of another, a colleague of mine pointed me to an article on the Chesterton, Ch Chesterton's fence. Does that ring a bell? You know what that is? It does ring a bell, but I don't remember anything about it or it's, it's a, um, a it's, a philo it's a philosophy, it's a philosophy the point, right? The yeah. point is you come across a fence that you don't understand why it's there. Yeah. So your first reaction might be that's that fence is irrelevant, but take it down, but you should never remove a fence until you know why it was put there in the first place. Mm, yeah. Like if you assume positive intent, there was probably a purpose that led somebody to decide I need to build this fence. So like the, the truth lies elsewhere, right? Like it first things you see at first blush aren't necessarily what they seem. So I think there's, I, I just love assuming that there was a positive reason behind it and let's yes. understand, understand that now if yeah, that's times really have changed, maybe it doesn't, we don't need the fence anymore, but right. then you're, you're making an informed decision to take it down instead of a reactive one. Yeah. Well, and there are a lot of emotional fences that people are putting up. That's a good, good analogy. Yeah. And I think inside of our team environments, oftentimes when we see somebody that's resistant to something or they're afraid, and it's not like we automatically all have to step into being a, a counselor for our colleagues, but we are human beings. We are supposed to understand more about maybe the reasons why someone is risk averse and coming alongside them and encouraging them and maybe even showing them the way by demonstrating you know, as opposed to just being like, oh, why can't they do this? Da, 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 da. It's like that is like a deeper level than just assuming the positive intent. It's like, well, if they're stuck, instead of accusing or mm -hmm. pointing out all the reasons why they shouldn't be stuck, come alongside and help them get unstuck. Yeah, it's like you just wrote the back of the trusted advisor book. I think that summarizes it. Really, really well. <laughs> well, I have to read it. Yeah. You should. Awesome. Thanks for the time, Brad. This is a great conversation and hopefully it helps a lot of people that are listening, but it's definitely awesome to hear what you guys are doing at Robots and Pencils, the type of culture you have, but also how you're cross-pollinating that culture into your clients. It's really exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on it. I'm happy to compare notes and wax philosophic with you any day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. This podcast is brought to you by Onward Insights. Onward empowers teams to uncover hidden bandwidth, deepen customer retention, improve user engagement, and drive conversations that lead to new revenue. Learn more at onwardinsights.com.